thank you so much for inviting me to tell you about slow lorises. And I'm going to tell you about the venom and use it as a platform, really, to tell you everything I've been learning about slow lorises for the last 17 years. And it's uh, really interesting to be able to tell you a little bit about this project, which is funded, ooh, their logo disappeared, but I did say the Leverhulme Trust right there, uh, because they finally have decided it was worthwhile for someone to study slow loris venom, because actually in the past when it was mentioned amongst a group of primatologists, they always laughed and they said, oh, that's really, really funny that a primate should be venomous. But now that I've been working with structural biologists, toxicologists and biochemists, they all think it's absolutely fascinating that the slow loris is one of only seven venomous mammals on Earth. So I'm going to put that into the context of loris ecology, but also see what it can tell us about primate origins and evolution and social grooming, which Robin might like a little bit. So, ooh, more communication breakdown or technological meltdown. So um, if we could see that, uh, I'm going to go through a few different points in the talk, a little bit about venomous mammals and introduce those to you, uh, in case you don't know about some of the other mammals in the world that are venomous, tell you why lorises truly are venomous, and uh, tell you about the slow loris in its venomous context. A lot of this is actually hypothesis driven, because we're just in the start of a three-year research project to understand why the loris is venomous. So I'm going to tell you actually a bit more about our hypotheses why it's venomous, what we've learned so far, but the behavioral and ecological data we have about lorises from long-term field studies over the last 17 years to develop the hypotheses, and, uh, and then give you a little bit about a hypothetical model about what we could do with those data, especially for my favorite theory of why they might be venomous and how that can tell us a bit about primate sociality and grooming. Uh, I just want to give you some deadly terminology or a couple of days after Halloween, but it's still fun to talk about death a little bit. Uh, and I want to define venom and uh, poison and uh, toxins for you because sometimes I'll use them interchangeably simply for the beauty of alliteration, but really you should know what they mean. Uh, a poison is actually a substance that is, can cause a deadly reaction to the consumer, but a poison isn't necessarily produced by the individual. Whereas a toxin can actually be sequestered by an animal to make it poisonous. A toxin can be part of a poison. So you can uptake poisons from other plants and animals and make yourself poisonous. And a venom is actually injected. It's a poison that's actually injected into another animal or a toxin that's actually injected. So poisons can be on your body or on your skin and make you unpalatable, or, and it's normally uh, a defensive, uh, it's normally a system that makes you harmful, whereas a venom is normally a defensive system. So venomous animals are normally producing it themselves, and poisonous animals are normally sequestering it from something else, but you can be venomous and poisonous at the same time. And that's something even more cool about lorises, because you might find out by the end of this talk that they are both poisonous and venomous because they have the two types of toxins that can make you both. So just a little introduction to why mammals in general may be venomous and why there are so few of them. We only do know about a few of them, 
And uh, in order to find out why a mammal or how a, a mammal is venomous, you actually have to do a lot of very invasive things to it. You normally have to kill them. And uh, to get scientific permission to cut open animals and remove their salivary glands and to remove the glands that are actually making the venom is usually very unethical. And so the things we know about mammal venom tend to be limited because those studies normally aren't allowed. But what we do know about mammal venom come from a few different animals. And the functions of venom in, or poisons in mammals are varied. The main one is food preparation. And there are a few different animals, such as the European water shrew. And they, have a, they produce a venom in their mouth. Venom is often in a saliva. And they inject it into food items to paralyze them so they can store them for later consumption. So they inject food into worms and things so they can eat them for later consumption. This is also what we see in the Haitian selenodon. These are the least known venomous mammals. Uh, they're extremely little known. Uh, very few field studies and very few studies on the characteristics of the venom. Uh, and this is the one that we know the best, which is the American short-tailed shrew. And uh, their venom can even glow in the dark. And they use it as a, a signaling device as well as to inject prey. And here you see one ripping apart uh, a snail that it's injected with its venom. So food preparation seems to be a key mechanism for using venom in mammals. An anti-predator defense might be a reason an animal might make itself poisonous. This is your European hedgehog, which you might be able to go out and see tonight, if they're still around. My dog could probably find you one. But they can put a poisonous substance from another animal onto their spines and make themselves poisonous. So they don't produce the venom themselves, they will take a poisonous substance from another animal or a poisonous plant, and then they can put it on their spines and use it as an anti-predator defense. So that's making yourself, uh, putting a secondary compound onto your own body, so it's an anti-predator defense. And we see this in lots of other animals, but it seems to be relatively rare in mammals as an anti-predator defense. We see it for other reasons. A very interesting one is intraspecific competition, and the best example for this is the platypus. And another very interesting factor about venom is it's expensive for the body to produce. So you might only produce it part of the year. And that's also why you might not know that some mammals are venomous, because if you sample them during part of the year, they may not appear to be venomous. Whereas if you sample them during another part of the year, they are, which is what the platypus does, because they only are venomous during the mating season. And they have a, the males only are venomous, and they have a poisonous spur that they use during aggressive male-male competition to inject venom into male competitors. So that's the final real strong selective pressure for venom in animals. Other than one other one I'll tell you a little bit later. So, before I uh, correlate those to the lorises, I'll just tell you a little bit about lorises first. And then I will tell you a little bit how lorises might be using those functions of venom in their own, in their own lives and ecology. What I did say up there, I didn't zoom in on that one. Um, I, uh, I like to collect the, the strange things that people say about lorises and their venom off the internet. And what the title of that cluster of slides said was adorable little furballs of death. 
<laughs> because if you can see here, the, the variety of lorises that we see across uh, South and Southeast Asia, where they're distributed from India to the Philippines, they do look a little bit cute to many people. And so when you do learn that they're venomous, it's very often the first reaction to say, oh my gosh, how can that thing be venomous? Um, and I just wanted to, to point out that these animals are extremely diverse group of primates with one of the largest ge geographic distributions of any primate subfamily. They uh, have an extremely, uh, as large as the macaques, as large as the gibbons, or larger than the gibbons, in fact. And if this will work, uh, if you can see this, I've just uh, tried to give you a little bit of an overview that in their body size, they range from 265 grams to over two kilograms. So really huge spectrum of body sizes. Uh, the species are true species. At the moment, we've got five recognized species that diverged from each other genetically anywhere between 3 million and 16 million years ago. Uh, within a single species that you see here on the island of Borneo, the body size ranges from 265 to 800 grams, uh, separated by major rivers, and the animals look completely different. And in fact, we're writing a paper to describe them as four separate species. So there, there's a lot of diversity within this group. And we're just writing a paper comparing them to the lemurs of Madagascar. And what we find is, if you know anything about lemurs from Madagascar, in 1992, there were about 32 species, and now there are 109. And we're finding that in this very broad geographic range across which the lorises occur, we're finding an equal genetic diversity with a real deep divergence time. So we're probably going to see more species. So they're a very broad group. You might have heard that they're slow. They're called slow lorises. But if we look at their home range size, it ranges anywhere from, well, this is a bit of a strange one, 0.8 hectares, but anywhere from 12 to 31 hectares. So these are animals that are about the size of a really good juicy melon, and they're moving in the size of 31 football pitches. So really huge home ranges. They move on average about six kilometers in a night, and uh, they're moving a lot and at speed, and they don't rest very much. So they have huge home ranges, moving a lot, and they occur really low population densities. So, um, and, and in general, they have a relatively dispersed social organization that seems to be kind of consistent across species, usually with one female and multiple males, with extreme competition between females, with single home ranges where they allow two or more males to share a home range, often with a smaller male and a larger male, so some sort of a beat male and an alpha male who are allowed to share a sleeping site with a single female. So interesting variation with some similarities, but we're still learning about the different species and what are those species anyway. Uh, they also have some really interesting morphological uh, distinctions, and this is actually the work of someone I could embarrass in the middle of the room, but I won't, he'll blush. My PhD student, Richard Moore, um, he's already blushing. And uh, one thing that's interesting that's going to come up later when I talk a little bit about grooming is that lorises are, are, cannot leap. So that's what makes people think that they're slow. But in order to move across their home range, they've got an incredible grasping hand. And they use this hand in different ways. They're very strong, they have to have a really strong grip well, one of the reasons is as an anti-predator device, so if a predator comes to grab them off the branch, they can't let go. 
But as you can see also, when they're cantilevering, as we call it, across broad or large gaps in the in forest, uh, they grab onto these very small terminal branches and have to move, in this case, this animal is about one, one kilogram, its body weight across these, these uh, gaps. And sometimes it takes quite a long time and many attempts to cross that gap, but if they go to the ground, they're very vulnerable to predators. <coughs> and so what seems to have happened with this really interesting grasping hand in a strepsorine, most strepsorines have a power grip where they don't have independent use of their fingers. What seems to happen with the lorises as well, is the slow lorises as well are feeding on a lot of nectar. They're uh, really specialized nectar feeders. Uh, the flowers, the, the flowering parts of plants are very delicate. They take, ooh, what's happening to the microphone? Sorry. Uh, they take uh, precision to eat these flowers. The lorises spend up to an hour and a half in a single inflorescence. And as they move from flower to flower, they gently inspect each one. They move the flower towards them, they look inside, and they see what's in it, and they kind of move to the next one, move to the next one. Uh, when they do that, they tip the flower towards them with their hand with just one or two fingers. And unlike most lemurs, they don't use the whole hand in a grip. And this is really interesting because most strepsorines can't do that. They can't use independent use of their fingers. And uh, this will also come up later when I tell you about grooming, that they can actually use their fingers independently a little bit. But that's just very, very rare for a strepsorine. And we think it's because this plant is so important for them, or eating nectar is so important for them, that if they damage the plant parts, they could use, in the case of this species, something that's maybe 80% of their diet. Um, and as you can see in this uh, diagram, when they're uh, in different parts of the tree, in the case of the terminal branches, which are the ones uh, that look like a, a chessboard, they're really relying on a, a one-handed grab a lot. So when they're in an area of the tree where they're in a really flexible environment, especially where there's a lot of acrobatic movement going on and the flowers are really swaying, they're going to need a lot more precision grip to use the hand. And that's going to be really interesting to see uh, yeah, how that's going to play out to other behaviors that they have. incredibly social for nocturnal primates. We often see that when people make models of sociality amongst the primates, they exclude the strepsorans altogether. They say, especially the nocturnal ones, the diurnal lemurs get booted out of these models, uh, and the, the nocturnal ones get excluded altogether. The nocturnal primates are communicating with all sorts of means that the diurnal ones don't use. They are still using scent, they're still using sound, and those mechanisms contain all sorts of important information that the diurnal primates couldn't conceive of. So they have that whole set of uh, communication going on that is very important, but on top of that, what we conceive of as important, touch and being side by side and being gregarious is also happening at an extensive level amongst the lorises. So we have social sleeping, and social sleeping is something we see very common amongst the nocturnal primates. We do have a few that still sleep solitarily, but we do have a sleeping group fidelity. So we don't have them swapping and changing sleeping groups. Once they do have a sleeping group, they're stable sleeping groups. And in the animals that have been studied for over a year, those sleeping groups may be, um, are stable over an entire year. 
We have interesting patterns of infant care. We have um, males also caring for infants. We have males playing with infants throughout the night. Infants are actually parked. They're only held and carried by the mother for about six to eight weeks. Then they're left on a single branch. But when they're left on a branch, other animals in that sleeping group will come and attend to them as well, not just the mother. And that's also relatively unusual for nocturnal primates. You don't have males caring for the infants. And often, only the males visit the infants. The mother's like, you do it. I really, I really I have to eat. You males should do something. I, they have a very heavy lactation load. They have um, a very heavy weight milk for um, a protein-rich milk, where the, the babies suckle all day and they don't suckle at all during the night. And so the female seems to have a heavy suckling load during the day and does not suckle the infant virtually at all during the night. And so she seems to focus a lot of her effort during lactation on feeding as much as possible. And the male then will play with and check on the baby during the night. <clears throat> the only difference is occasionally if a human observer, for example, or a potential predator does approach the infant and it gives an alarm call, she will race towards the infant and grab it and carry it to another point and park it somewhere else. So she will attend to it if it makes an anti-predator call. Uh, they do share food as well. They, they engage in food sharing and food snatching. Uh, these are Thoris's sharing a bird that's been given to them in a captive situation. They can be put together in large groups in captive situations and live happily together, uh, depending on the group that you put together and the cage conditions they're given. And um, they can really amicably share food. They don't really try to kill each other at all when they're given something to share, which is something, again, you often find with nocturnal primates in captivity. They can be very nasty about sharing food with each other. They'll just take food out of each other's hands. They're very curious about sharing food. It is something very interesting in the social behavior among these primates. And here, this is actually a slender loris. All the pictures I had of slow lorises grooming were video. And I didn't know how to get a video into Prezi without some, doing something crazy that I didn't have time for. But slow lorises also groom quite a lot. And what they do do, they use the strepsiran tooth comb, which is an anterior forward-facing little dental comb that helps them to groom each other with the mouth, but they also use the hands. So what they do use the hands for is they hold the body parts steady while they use the tooth comb, and they really like find a part of the body they want to groom, and they pull it towards them, and then they groom. And so that's something I'm interested to see what Simon might have to say about if bush babies do that. There's something I've really noticed recently when I've been watching how they use these weird prehensile hands is that the hands are very often involved with how they groom each other and how they pull each other around when they groom each other. And I have to say, with some of these primates in the wild, they spend up to 40% of their time in gregarious interactions. And uh, in a recent review by Bob Sussman and Paul Garber, they calculated percent of gregarious time against all diurnal primates in the platyrines and the old world monkeys and the apes, and they calculated an average of gregarious time spent together at only about three to five percent. So if you looked at actual time when they were doing something, not just spending time in proximity. And so in some individual lorises, their time spent gregarious is better than five. And this is just a social network, a socio-matrix of times uh, that animals spend in social interaction. And as you can see, it looks a bit of a mess, but these are lots and lots of animals spending lots of time with each other, and that's really what I want to illustrate, that it's not just one loris focusing time on another loris, 
They have a very complex network of social interactions and complex ranging interactions as well. So um, remember to, urine is important. We mail is a bit like an email. And when they leave these deferred olfactory messages to each other, the lorises are coming and reading it and getting lots of social information. And they love to urinate and leave messages for other lorises. And there's a lot going on when they're marking their territories. So they've got that social message going on as well. All right. So let's go back to venom. And if you didn't know what that was, this is loris venom. This is actually the abridged uh, protein structure of loris venom. And what has been discovered in the only very good study of loris venom is that the venom, when it's isolated, is actually extremely evolutionarily parallel to that of the cat's Fel V1 protein peptide. And that's what it looks like. And so, um, well, that's actually one aspect of the loris venom. And so some individuals who die of loris bites, they go into anaphylactic shock, very similar to people with severe allergy to cats. Um, that's only based on a small sample size of captive animals, but we do know that um, certain mutations to proteins like FELD1 are still classified as venom. And it is injected through the mouth, combined with saliva, and uh, here we go. So this is a little bit about loris venom itself. So this is a Javan's low loris, and it's in its classic defensive posture when it's going to strike and or when it would be delivering its venomous bites. If you've ever held a slow loris, this is what they do when they're, when they're stressed. They immediately put their arm above their head, and just below their elbow is this. This is the brachial gland, and it exudes a secretion that's really oily based, and it's full of a stinky, amorphous structure that dries and crystallizes, and can crystallize on the top of their head, um, and they mix it with saliva. In the 1990s, a researcher actually, for the first time, after hearing from many local people, reading physicians' reports, and hearing from zookeepers that people had died from loris bites, isolated the venom into two different solutions and injected it into laboratory mice, and the mice died. Um, he did use two different solutions, one that was more aqueous and one that was more oil-based. He found that the mice died at two different rates, and he decided that potentially the venom had two different kinds of properties, one that was slow-acting and one that was fast-acting. And this is very similar to what we see in snakes. So we often see in a snake bite that you have an initial strike where the individual will go into kind of a shock, and then you'll afterwards have a slow-acting poison that will, will take hold in a longer period of time. And that's what we seem to see in the loris. And, and this is, again, the one protein that comes up time and time again in the studies as the... Um, the lighter weight molecule. And also what seems to come up as a heavier weight molecule is that on top of having this venom, lorises do seem to sequester food, uh, toxins from their food. So on top of producing their own venom, they also seem to sequester toxins from food. If they're kept in captivity, they seem to sequester fruits, like some sort of a fruit peptide. But if they're kept in the wild setting, they seem to sequester uh, a, a protein class that's very similar to batraca toxin, which we see in poison arrow frogs. And they seem to be getting this from some sort of insects that they eat. This is all still preliminary and based on small sample sizes, but it's really fascinating stuff. Oh, it worked. Oh no, it still turned around. I tried to make it turn around. 
I wonder why it's starting on the side. But what you can see here in this um, Sumatran slow loris is the tooth comb. And uh, this is the, the injection device of the venom. And um, it has been shown that, interestingly, in the slow loris, even though this tooth comb is also used for grooming, it's also used for gouging bark, they can make holes in the tree that are so big. When I've shown these holes to people, they said, isn't that a nest hole? And I said, no, they've actually gouged to make gum. Uh, but if you put fluid on it, the fluid can actually move upward when the tooth comb is sitting stable on a table. So it's been ascribed as a function to progress the fluid upward, so if it bites you, it's uh, assisting the fluid in going into you while it bites you. So it's got sort of everything. It's got the venom, it's got the venom delivery device, and, um, and it goes strangely into this posture when it bites you. But it's a very complex system. It's got to kind of do three things in order to deliver the venom. And so everybody's wondered why that's evolved. So now you know a little bit about its ecology. You know a little bit about why other venomous mammals are venomous. So I'll just go on to maybe why the slow loris is venomous. And our hypotheses we're going to be testing during the Leverhulme Grant project, and which one we think might be a really exciting one, and how that's going to be. Ooh, <laughs> I really went up that time. Here we go. Which one we think might be a really exciting one? Well, that did say Alice specific defense strategy. Uh, the original idea was is that lorises are slow, lorises are cryptic, lorises are defenseless, cute little creatures. And so, of course, if you hold a loris, it goes, ah! And the most important thing it might be using it, this venom for is an Alice specific defense strategy against predators. Um, it does have some known natural predators. Um, this actually isn't one of them, but this is an animal that was actually tested by a guy called Don Alterman in the 1990s, where he took some venom and he presented it to potential predators of lorises that live with them in their natural range, and he wanted to see what would happen if he showed them loris venom. And they smelled it and they, they ran away. They showed disgust faces, they showed flamen, and they retreated to the other side of the cage. And I read this and I thought, this is weird. Like, does this really happen? Like, what, did you just put some loris venom in a cage and the animal runs away? That sounds really peculiar. Well, I made a film this summer with the BBC for The Natural World that will be out this January on BBC Two. You could watch it. <laughs> it's going to be really great. Um, and uh, they, they were like, you've got to reconstruct this for television. And I thought, oh, no, this will be embarrassing. It's going to look really stupid. You'll never get this on film. But Ultimate also did an experiment with sunbears. And so we did the same thing for the BBC film crew. And I'm kind of standing there, all right, I'll do it. And we made a little Loris model. And we put some Loris venom in a rattan basket with leaves saturated with Loris urine. Well, first we put a plain rattan basket with nothing. And we put it in the sunbear enclosure. They're sunbears rescued from the illegal animal trade. They're totally bored. They're in a barren enclosure. And they went, basket, yeah! And they ripped it to pieces. And it was like the best thing that had happened spending a week. And then I was like, oh, yeah, OK, here we go. So then we put the one, like, take the bear out. Put it in the one with the Laura's venom. So I did, OK, let's see what happens now, BBC film group. The bear comes in with a little, like, critter cam inside the rattan basket. And his nose goes in the basket. Ah, and he runs to the other side of the enclosure and just starts stereotypic pacing. 
And I kind of went, but I really want to play with the basket. Walked back to the basket, put his nose in. Oh, it was amazing. I couldn't believe it. Like, it was really amazing. So I, I really understood what Alderman then said in his paper when he said the venom repelled potential predators. Because it was, it, we did it with two bears, and they both really were repelled and were so stressed doing the stereotypic pacing, would not approach the basket. And the, the keeper said, would you please remove the basket? We're really worried about the welfare of the bears. And so I thought it was very interesting that this venom repelled some bears. Um, we did also present this same experiment to an orangutan, which Altman didn't do. The reason we did it is the orangutan is a known predator of the loris. The sun bear is not a known predator of the loris. So I would suspect if the venom should repel a predator, the predator wouldn't want to eat it. But with a known predator, maybe it shouldn't repel the venom. And we presented the same thing, the same exact experimental scenario to the orangutan, and they walked up and they just went, great, loris, wish I'd had one of these before, and they ate the entire thing. First they took the cotton swab the venom was on, they ate half of it, stuck the other half in their ear, and then ate the other half, and then ate all the loris leaves, and then smashed the camera into pieces. And the only thing that was left was a little card that recorded everything. It was amazing. Um, but apparently that will not be on the BBC because they said it would confuse the public because they said that it would look like the Loris wasn't venomous. But I said, but it makes sense because they eat them. So, but very interesting. And obviously another predator to Loris is reticulated pythons. So they do have predators. This one isn't an olfactory necessarily. It wouldn't necessarily be repelled by olfaction as much so, or so much. but. These very, very olfactory orientated predators with a big white nose, they seem to be the ones being repelled potentially by the time. So it could be an ally specific defense strategy. Um, well, also, you know, we, we looked at all our little shrews that were using venom to kill prey, and maybe Loris is doing that. Um, I mentioned earlier Loris has killed birds, uh, they also killed bats. And they eat tarsiers, and they love to eat frogs and lizards. And I, I was going to show you this horrible video that Richard took of Valoris eating a frog, but then I knew everyone would leave the room because it's so disgusting. And I did not get videos in here. But they really like rip their head off and just <laughs> eat. They love killing things. And I don't know if they really need venom because they're so good at killing things and they just rip their head off. So you don't really need venom to rip heads off things. Uh, and they love flowers as well, uh, interestingly. So like the, the, even though they, I don't think this is a very good hypothesis. I don't think they're like a shrew. They're eating so much flower, flowers and they're also extremely specialized exudativores eating lots of gum. And actually, the exudates they eat have huge amounts of secondary compounds as well. So that it's argued one of the reasons they may also have a slow basal, basal metabolic rate, which is about 67% of the fiber standard instead of 75% like most primates, is they're eating huge amounts of these exudates as well. So this hypothesis, I think, is a little bit strange for the lorises. What about, though, male-male competition like the platypus or intraspecific competition? or you know, interspecies competition. Well, lorises are they're really not nice. Yeah, they look really sweet, but this is a reintroduced female, and 
little hole in her head after a month of her of, of getting this wound, and um, they really destroy each other's heads, and they almost always go for the head. This is a bit worse. This one ripped the other one's face off, and. Um, when I look at these pictures, because you think, oh, this is my, maybe to defend each other against a predator, but maybe it's to defend each other against ripping each other's faces off. Um, this one's not so bad, actually, because this one only ripped the other one's nose off. And actually, you can't tell in this picture, but it also he has some really bad damage on his ears. And his eye isn't just closed, his eyes are really wounded and half closed. He, this guy was really horrible, we called him Mr. Ugly. He, he was really, really ugly. Um, this one doesn't have an ear, like that's a whole wound on that half of the head. And also, this is a this is this is a really small loris in a really big picture, but this is an entire wound on the top of the head there as well. So, in a huge number of the lorises we catch in the wild, they have vicious, vicious head wounds. I, I uh, one thing I haven't said at all yet is that lorises are very, very prominent in the pet trade, and. Um, it's the biggest threat to lorises. Now, I was interviewing a hunter this summer, and he said that he has to put back about 70% of his catch due to their heads being mutilated or missing an eye because they have no commercial value. But what he does instead is he takes them closer to his house and reintroduces them to the forest there, hoping that they'll breed so he can have a, a breeding colony close to his house to catch more babies there so he can sell them in the pet trade. Very enterprising of the hunter. But I do think it's fascinating that from when you get this local ecological knowledge from people, and he mentions to me about a huge variety, 70% of head wounds or missing eyes in these animals, I think it's very, very interesting. And almost all of the animals we catch in the wild have some form of vicious wound. So um, we do have uh, very, very large testes in male lorises. We have there's extreme competition between females who have these single home ranges that are exclusive to other female home ranges. And lorises only um, uh, go into estrus for about three days a year. And during that estrus period, there's a lot of competition between males, where you get about 11 to 17 males coming from all around and gathering. Even though you have this exclusive ranges during the rest of the year, during the period of mating, you'll suddenly get a crowd gathering around that female, and are very viciously fighting for her. Uh, we never know who wins, because up until now we hadn't ever got permission to do genetic studies in Asia. It's extremely difficult to get permission to export genetic samples, to ever know if the guy she stays with the rest of the year is the winner, and actually produces the offspring, or if one of these other 15 that come in wins. But um, that's uh, really going to be the interesting question. So, I don't know, something's going on, and is the venom destroying their heads. And the last thing I want to say about this is we're now working in Indonesia on a project kind of battling this illegal pet trade. And we're working with some wonderful vets that have been working now since 2006, well, even longer, but at the specialized facility since 2006 with hundreds and hundreds of lorises. Because all they do is get in hundreds of lorises with horrible problems like this um, that are dying. and they say that if a loris like, hurts its arm on wire, they can heal it. But if the loris's wound is because it was bitten by another loris, it just gets necrotic 
and gets more and more disgusting and gets more and more festering and it's almost impossible to heal. And these pictures look like leprosy. And we've sent them to pathologists, we've sent them to specialized labs, and, and nobody can work out what is going on. And we kind of think, is it the venom? Is that what's going on? Is that why these wounds are, are going necrotic? And it does parallel what you see in, in really severe snake bites. So very interesting, because normally a venom shouldn't be, you shouldn't really, well, I guess you can envenomate your same species. You shouldn't be envenomating yourself, for sure. All right. So now I go on to my favorite theory, which is this one. I, I put uh, ticklish lorises because I don't know if anyone in the room has ever seen the YouTube video of the loris being tickled, um, which has uh, gone viral to 12 million viewers. And it does relate to this illegal pet trade and why we have so many lorises in this sample as well, which I'm going to show you a little bit. But, um, we have another way that, I told you lorises have two kinds of toxins. They've got the one they produce themselves, and they seem to be bolstering it with something else. And animals also sequester toxins from their foods. And of course, a lot of birds do something called anting. I don't know if you can see the little ants on its feather, but you can probably see it. Oh, let's just go to this one first. I'll go to this one first. You can see it there. And you have active anting or passive anting. One is where the animal just lies down and lets the ants crawl all over its feathers or its fur, and then the ants release a nox noxious substance onto the feather or the fur. The other is where they actually rub the noxious substance onto their fur. And um, this, this is thought to either soothe the skin or it's thought to leave essentially an insect repellent on the skin, some, some form of a deterrent. And one of the functions potentially is the animal then can infiltrate the colony because it will smell like the ants and the ants won't attack it and it can have a nice food source. If it eats enough of those, like dendrobatid frogs, they themselves become very poisonous. So dendrobatid frogs in the wild, these little poison arrow frogs, they become very poisonous. But within just one generation or a few, I don't even think it's a generation, just some, a certain period of time in captivity, without their poisonous diet, they completely lose their poisons. So their poison is completely a poison, it's not a venom, it's completely sequestered from what they're eating. And, um, and so this is something that's very interesting. Are you eating something and bringing in the poison? Or are you rubbing poison on your body and bringing in the poison? Oh, I'm doing that. I'm going to go back to that one. Uh, and now we go to little malaria beetles. These are really wonderful little beetles. They're horrible and disgusting, and they spray a toxic substance. They're very difficult to eat. And the first time I ever became alerted that lorises might be doing something like this was I was collecting um, insects in India, and my, my guide, I had a friend who didn't mind touching anything. And I was like, the lorises keep eating those really colorful beetles, and I don't want to touch them. Can you get them for me? And the guide was going to, no, don't touch, don't touch, in Tamil. And I was like, why is he saying that? And then my friend just grabbed it, and it squirted him full on in the eye. And the guide just started laughing at it. Oh, I told him not to touch it. <laughs> and then, then the whole colony went off, because they lived in a little cluster. And the whole colony then sprayed. It was really, really horrible and really painful. And, but he actually thought it was funny as well, because it was really horrible, one of those things that's so horrible, it's funny. And I thought, oh my gosh, they're eating those. But what they used to do is they would eat one, 
And then they'd run away, and it would kind of squirt, but they'd rub it all over their arms and their hands, and they'd eat it, and then they'd go back and eat the next one and take it away, go back and eat the next one, so they ate the entire cluster. And I thought that was really strange, and I never realized it could be this kind of anting <coughs> Well, another animal does this as well, and this is the pitui. And I like this one, avoid the pitui. It was discovered in 1990, native to Papua New Guinea, the only poisonous bird on earth. And, and the pitui was discovered to be poisonous when mist netters were taking it out of nests, and it burned their hands, and they thought, oh, what's going on with this bird? And it was discovered to eat malaria beetles and to sequester the batrachotoxins from the beetles, and the batrachotoxins went into its feathers. Again, a lot of um, these animals that are poisonous, they store the poisons in the external tissues. So they store them in their feathers, they store them in their, uh, in their chitin or their exoske exoskeletons. And so if you're going to eat them, so the loris, for example, was going to avoid those parts, it wouldn't eat the exoskeleton, or it wouldn't eat the feathers of the bird, or it wouldn't eat the part that might be containing these secondary compounds. Again, loris seem to eat everything. So if they go for a malaria beetle, they eat the whole thing. And they don't seem to be avoiding parts that would be containing these secondary, secondary compounds. And that's what we're going to be looking at during the study, for sure. We're going to be examining, do they discard any part, and measuring those parts, is seeing if they are discarding parts that are containing high degrees of secondary compounds. But clearly, from what we've shown so far, is these lorises do have high degrees of sequestered secondary compounds in their venom. So um, they could be a little bit like a pitui. They're clearly doing all sorts of weird things, because they are, as well, so here's a, a slender loris again, but they are eating these disgusting insects and gums containing high degrees of secondary compounds which they seem to be able to metabolize with a very slow phase of metabolic rates. They rub horrible things on their skin, and they perhaps are sequestering secondary compounds on top of producing a biological venom. So they're very, very nasty creatures. And it's really interesting because um, one of the reasons that, one of the main reasons we've seen in other primates which do this behavior is um, for reducing ectoparasites. And there are only, at the moment, that I can find in the literature, and if ever anyone in the room knows differently, I'd be interested to know, four other primates that do, that use um, secondary compounds to rid their body of ectoparasites. And that's the spider monkey, the night monkey, the capuchin, and the black lemur. And all of these animals, they take some sort of an insect and, or leaf, and they rub it in their fur, so it's active uh, application of an outside external source to acquire the secondary compound, and then they use it for um, removal of the ectoparasites or of mosquitoes. So that's really interesting that we have these guys really actively using their hands to do it, even a lemur doing it, actively using its hands. The loris does it a little bit more passively, although actually with the urine especially, which also contains the secondary compounds, they rub their urine all over themselves as well. So, um, but we have another a primate that's actually doing this sort of thing as well. And the result of that, oh, there we go, there they are, the spider monkey, the night monkey, I didn't think it zoomed in on them for some reason. Ah, and it's in the caption, and the uh, black lemur. Okay, and the result of that is this, 
is uh, that from field data, uh, I tried to get it to zoom in on that little loris, but it didn't work. What you can see is that loris up there does have a bunch of ticks on its ear. And that loris was in a really, really horrible habitat um, during the wet season in Cambodia. But if I look at my field data of these slender lorises, which are really eating these horrible, noxious things, of 37 wild animals caught, they didn't have any fleas, um, any, sorry, any mites, lice, or ticks out of nearly, well, over 60 animals. In Cambodia, this was our single Nixibus pygmaeus that had any of those ectoparasites. In Vietnam, of 51 pyg uh, pygmy slow lorises, only one had an ectoparasite. In India, of seven Nixibus bengalensis that we caught, uh, none had any ectoparasites. And then in our Nixibus javanicus, we asked the vet if she could send us the data, and she just said of over 300 animals that are extremely, extremely, extremely rare. Uh, but interestingly, completely different in a study in Malaysia, Nixibus kukang, which was only during the rainy period, every single animal had ticks. And a few had mites and lice, but during the dry season, they didn't have any. And this is something that's very interesting because what we know from, uh, I have a slide about that, so yeah. Why this is interesting is this. Okay, and this is, this is sort of the end now. I think I'm still all right. If that clock in the back is, is true, I'm all right. So why this is interesting, and why it's interesting that it's during the wet season that they do have ticks and the rest of the time they don't, or is this, is grooming is very, very important in primates. Obviously, in German, the word for grooming is lausen, to remove lice. And everybody always thought like grooming is to like nitpick, to remove the stuff. And, um, ah, why didn't it show you those guys? Well, you know who those guys are. Those are silhouettes macaques and chimpanzees and baboons <coughs> and more macaques. And um, there they all are doing what we think of as being a very primate social behavior, which is social grooming. We now know that grooming is used for reconciliatory behavior, it's used for establishing rank, it's used for um, all sorts of things, manipulation, and for calming each other, it's, uh, and it's a very important primate social behavior. And it's not only used for removing parasites, but um, Lawrence's do a few other little weird things, which is why I think this is interesting with this idea of ectoparasites and venom. Is that a few periods where Lawrence's are completely alone. One is they've got these little tiny helpless babies. Their babies, no wrong way, are born very, very tiny. After a six and a half month gestation, they give birth to, in this case, the pygmy slow loris, which is about 450 grams, they give birth to a nine gram infant. So that's a really small baby for a really relatively large body size primate. They don't sleep in nests, they don't sleep in tree holes, so unlike a lot of the lemurs, which might potentially have the option to line their nests with leaves that contain properties that might help to protect them against parasites, lorises just sleep on branches. So um, during periods of sleep, they don't tend to have an option where they could have any sort of thing that would protect them from ectoparasites. Um, and the, another really final unusual thing about them is they actually go into torpor. 
this is the pygmies of the Loris again, and during the, and Indonesia is a weird place, because Indonesia isn't very seasonal, but Loris is probably didn't evolve in Indonesia. They evolved in Indochina, which is a much more seasonal environment. And during the cold, rainy season in Indochina, it does get very, sorry, during the warm, dry season in Indochina, cold dry season in New China, it reaches temperatures at night of about seven degrees. And during that period, they get, the lorises get very, very fat, they change their coat color, and they go into a period of, of, of semi-torpor. During that period as well, here you can see the layer of body fat that the loris gains. Weirdly enough, they stop all that social behavior. They become almost completely solitary. So they reduce their behavior dramatically. They're no longer moving five to eight kilometers a night. And they um, don't sleep together anymore. So they start to sleep alone. They stop being very social. And they reduce activity quite a lot while they're going into the seasonal torpor. And um, this just shows you a little bit of their activity. They're still active throughout the night. But, um, and, uh, they're particularly active during dark nights, but they're not active when it's very cold, unless it's, unless it's quite um, dark. So they're very, very, very active during, they're very rarely active during bright nights, unless it's very warm. So really, lorises don't like cold nights, and they don't really like bright nights, unless it's warm enough for them to be out in a bright night. And so, what I think is very interesting about this is that um, this would be the time if a low, and, and the other thing that's happening during this period is food is reduced dramatically in the South Indo-Chinese forests. So this would be a time a loris might need to increase its intake of unpalatable foods. So if a loris is increasing its intake of unpalatable foods, like to toxic insects or gums that have high degrees of secondary compounds, which is actually what we see. As soon as the rains start and as soon as flowers and fruits come, the lorises think it's great and they're really enthusiastic about those kind of foods. Um, maybe that's a really good time to have these high degrees of secondary compounds to be more venomous or to be more poisonous because if you can reduce your ectoparasite loads when it's risky, when all the leaves have dropped from the trees, it's risky to sleep in groups. So you're sleeping alone, it's too risky to sleep in groups, and therefore you can't groom each other, so you have to kind of have your own strategy to reduce your ectoparasite load. And in the case of the loris, that might be either sequestering compounds from secondary foods or being venomous on your own. Um, and of course, torpor is not only in lorises, it's also in some of the lemurs. And here we have lemurs getting to Madagascar 50 million years ago. We now know that the origins of loris, lorises are really, really deep at least 43 million years ago, and maybe this torpor is something around 50 million years ago that Loris has shared with the lemurs, and it's maybe an ancestral characteristic between lorises and lemurs, because many people have argued that when lemurs got to Madagascar, it was in a torporous state as they floated on a mass of vegetation going from Africa to Madagascar. But, uh, that's just a, another little idea. Ooh, we don't need to go there. Just a few mouse lemurs that go into true hibernation rather than, than torpor. So um, I'm just, just out of time now. And it's time for some acknowledgments. But um, that's a real whirlwind tour of lorises. 
and I met him. I'm happy to take any questions.